We'll just open up in a, a word of prayer here. Lord, we just pray that you would use your word to open our hearts and minds to you and draw us closer to you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today starts the season of Advent, and I was looking up some things about Advent. The word Advent comes from a Latin word, just means simply coming or arrival. And so today we join with Christians around the world as we celebrate and prepare for uh, the birth of Jesus. As I was looking, um, in the early church, the actual coming, though, they were talking about with Advent season was the second coming. Uh, that's what they were preparing for, and it was often a somber time, a time of reflection, of uh, prayer and, and fasting. It was during the Middle Ages that the focus of Advent changed to the first coming, to, to Christ's birth. As I was looking up, um, and Michael's already mentioned, that this first Sunday is often focused on uh, hope, the hope we have in Jesus. And as time has gone with Advent, that hope is not only celebrated the first coming, his birth, but also his second coming, his victorious return. And so with that, um, we're going to go and revisit Isaiah chapter 9 here. And I'll just read this section again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so as we see this, we see this, this hope. And first we recognize that this is talking about the Messiah. And what other ruler, whatever president or emperor or king or dictator could ever have these titles? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we see that this kingdom is different than every other kingdom and that once it is established, it is forever. It states that it will never end, that the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, that it will be from that time on and forevermore. And so we have this great hope that Christ will establish this kingdom. And as we look at it, we see three great characteristics of this kingdom, things that we all yearn for, things that we say that we wish we had. And we see that it is peaceful that is marked by justice and righteousness. As Michael, as the whole group already read, when we see the greatness of this peace, every warrior's boot and garment that's ever been used in battle is going to be burned. It's going to be totally done away with. We see further in Isaiah 2, chapter, excuse me, 2, 4, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Not only is there no use for implements of war, there won't be any training for war because it, peace will be established. And such is the peace and safety that in chapter 11, Isaiah gives us this picture of peace. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Such is the peace and safety that a little child can lead out a lion, and there is no fear at all. And also, as we look at justice, we already read that um, when Christ established this kingdom, 
that the burden will be removed from people, that the rod of the oppressor will be destroyed. It states that he's going to not only establish it, but this whole kingdom will be upheld by justice and righteousness, and that will be forever. In Isaiah chapter 42, it states that he will bring justice to all the nations. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the entire earth. And so we have this great hope, this, this picture of peace and justice and righteousness. But we realize this is a future hope. This isn't today, is it? You don't have to watch the news long or just be outside in the world or, or, or be aware and talk to people and realize that this is not the picture of the world today. There isn't peace. There is violence throughout the world in various ways and in localities, and there's certainly wars going on. And there's often injustice. Historically, there's been injustices throughout the world, and unfortunately, injustice continues. And we don't see people, and particularly rulers, acting, acting righteously. We often see self-interest. And so it, it, we have to ask a question is, if God's intention is for peace, justice, and righteousness, then, then why not today? I mean, it is wonderful, this great hope we have. And God says he will establish this. And one thing I want to draw out, he says, this isn't dependent on anybody. It's not dependent on you. It's not dependent on any ruler. He states the zeal of the Almighty will accomplish this. And so if that's going to happen, then why not today? And so we're going to turn to chapter 59 of Isaiah. And Isaiah is going to start with two questions, actually two rhetorical questions, but these questions should be very familiar with us today. We, we phrase them differently today. We hear them differently today. And we would put it this way is, okay, with all the suffering and pain and problems in the world is, what, what's the problem? God can't be both good and he can't be strong. One of those two, he can't be almighty and good. Or some people will cut right to what they mean as they say, well, there can't be a God because he can't be good and, and with all these things going on. Now, as Isaiah looks at, at this question, he knows that there's a God. And so he's going to ask the questions a little differently. He's going to say, is the problem that God is, is weak? Is his arm too short? And so this phrase here, arm of the Lord, is, is a symbol of God's strength. And he says, well, is, it just, is God's arm too short? Is he not strong enough to intervene? Or is it that he can't hear? Is, is, does he not perceive what's going on? Is he distant? what's going on? Is, is that the problem? And he's going to answer those questions with a very affirmative no for us. And so we'll turn to there. Isaiah 59, starting with verse 1. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice, no one pleads a case with integrity, they rely on empty arguments, they utter lies, they conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Their deeds are evil deeds and acts of violence are in their hands, their feet rush into sin, they are swift to shed innocent blood, they pursue evil schemes, Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness 
but we, excuse me, so justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. We look for justice, but find none, for deliverance, but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. And so Isaiah answers the question and says, yes, there is problems. In fact, if you read through the book of Isaiah, there is this, um, keeps going back and forth between this future promise of the kingdom of God and the fact of the current state of the world. He, he gives many judgments, uh, prophecies against Judah and against the surrounding countries and say, no, you, you, you are violent, you are, you are wicked, you treat people uh, dishonestly, you, you mutter lies, and that goes throughout all these countries. And so Isaiah is quite aware of the state of the world when he makes these statements of what will happen in the future. And he comes to this point, and uh, one thing I'd also like to point out is when he used these words, these are very strong words when he talks about sin um, and, and iniquity. He's saying you, people are choosing to do what's wrong and such. And so we find this very sad statement at, toward the end of 15 and into 16, that the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. God's quite aware of this situation. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. You know, I was contemplating that. That's an interesting word, appalled, when you think that God knows everything. But so why is God appalled at this situation when, when he knows everything? And that's because when God created us, he created us in his image. He created us, male and female, in his image. And it states that we were created slightly lower than the heavenly beings and crowned with glory and honor. And we were made to rule over his creation, the work of his hands. And so what we should have been is not the case today. And so God is appalled that there was no one to intervene. When we look at that word intervene, it, it has the uh, same root or meaning as the word to intercede for somebody, like a priest interceding. It, it has the idea of, of meeting together. And so it's basically saying there's no one who can have the holiness and what God has of justice and meet with us who can bring us together. There, there is no one. And this would be a really sad message, particularly for Christmas coming up, if Isaiah 59 didn't continue. And it says, so his own arm, again, the strength of God, so his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay. Wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. So God says, yes, I understand the situation. I am going to take care of this. And my strength, again, goes back to what we're going to see pictures. If you kept reading in 59's War, the second coming is that I will establish this. I will bring absolute justice and truth 
to the earth. In Isaiah 11, it also has this theme, and it says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, you know, identifying from the line of David. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So again, we have this great picture of hope that God will establish justice and righteousness and he will accomplish this. As I was reading these verses, it reminded me of a sermon some of you may have heard that Justin gave, I don't know if it was last year, year and a half or so, when he was talking in Revelation. He was talking about when Jesus comes back in power and might, and he was talking about the description of the battle that takes place. And he says there's not much description because not much takes place. Jesus comes and he says it's the end and evil and wickedness is destroyed. It's a very quick and decisive battle. And so that gives us great hope, except for one thing, at least personally for me, I can say. There, there's one problem here that I notice as I read this. Yes, I'm glad that Christ is coming in power. I'm glad that wickedness and evil will be done away with, and justice and righteousness will be established forever. But it does beg the question, well, what about me? Because I just read in 59 that no one was there to intercede. No one was working justice and righteousness. And when I read in, we read in 59, if we go back to 59 a bit, uh, this picture of justice and righteousness and truth trying to enter into our society, it says that I'm not a passive participant in this. I wasn't just sitting watching and suddenly evil broke out in the world. I'm like at a, a football game, you know, and you're watching and it's like, oh, you see what's going on, but I have nothing to do with it. No, it says that I am part of that. It says that if you remember, justice is pushed back. It says that truth tries to enter, but I have destroyed truth, and truth falls into the street. And so it's great that Jesus is coming back, and he's going to store this, but if I'm part of this wickedness, in which I am, and if I have done what's wrong, if I have sinned, then aren't I going to be swept away with everything else? And so we have to now turn to Isaiah 53. Who, oh, and, and one of the things I want you to notice here is just as we, as we read this, again, this idea of um, the arm of the Lord comes and strength. And so we saw one side of God's strength in the second coming that he destroys evil and wickedness and establishes it. He does it by himself, and no one is possibly can, can uh, withstand. There, there's no contest there but we're going to see a totally different side of God's strength as we read this, a very surprising view of God's strength. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. And when you think of a root out of dry ground, it's a very vulnerable um, situation. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering. Excuse me. 
and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid him the iniquity of us all. I mentioned earlier that these terms are very strong terms. When we look at transgression and iniquity, these both indicate willful sin. These are not accidents. These are not, as sometimes we say, there's other words for sin that mean, you know, we fall short. Um, but but these, no, no, these are very active words. These are, I knew what I shouldn't do, and I just did it anyway. Or I knew what I shouldn't do, and I said, don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. I, I chose to do it. Maybe the strongest word of all in, in this Old Testament reading is that word iniquity. It has a very uh, of evil desire, wicked desire. And so these are very strong words for our, for our situation. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You know, this, we talked about the hope first of Christ's second coming. We also have great hope here. I want you to think a little bit about this. When he talks about that he bore all the sins, transgressions, iniquities, you could think about, I really don't want you to go there, but the sins that you are particularly repulsive, or maybe your own sins that you would hate to reveal to anybody, but Christ not only knows them intellectually, he not only knows them because he, he knows everything about us, he knows them physically because he suffered for them. He bore that pain and shame and suffering for us. And so there's nothing that we could possibly tell him or anything about us that will turn him away from us. I was, I was thinking about this, that... Um, you know, not only has Jesus suffered all this great pain, and we're just thinking about that, all the pain and shame and all the things that I should have had were on him, even though he was innocent. But instead of being eternally angry with us, or being eternally repulsed or rejecting us, he bore all that pain, and he loves us. In fact, he keeps drawing us closer to him. The ones who brought him this pain, he keeps saying, come to me and I will bear this. I've already paid the price. Now, we have a role to play in this. Our role is, is simply a role of response in that we confess our sins. We repent. In other words, we turn from our sins, and we begin to follow Jesus. But there is nothing in our histories or even present that can turn us away from Jesus. He has paid that price and knows us completely. As I was thinking about this and our response to this, I've already said that one of our responses is, or our main response is to confess and to repent, because God's already said he's going to forgive us. He already says, I bore the sin. There's nothing that you can't tell that I don't know about you, and I love you. We follow him. 
But as I was thinking about our response to this, I was influenced by a couple quotes we're going to look by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I think what's probably most important during this Advent season is not that we come up with a list of things to do or, you know, give you a task to do as much as to appreciate just what God has done for us. I, I, there's a verse from a, a Michael Card song that, that I really like. It's called The Way of Wisdom. And um, it says, basically, you can stop pretending that it all depends on you. For it's not how much you love, it's how much he loves you. And I would hope for this Advent season that you would consider that, that it really is about how much God loves us. And in, in Isaiah, it keeps pointing this out to us. As I mentioned before, it says that who's going to establish justice and righteousness? Is it going to be a political party or if we get the right philosophy? No, no, it's going to be the zeal of the Lord Almighty. Who was able to answer the problems of personal sin? Well, no one was able to. It was, it was Jesus. And so in some ways this Advent season, I'd like us to all just take a deep breath and say, God took care of everything. Yes, I have to I respond to that, but just to appreciate that God really took care of everything. Another thing I would suggest to us, and this is maybe more personal, is that as I look back on Christmas celebrations, holiday celebrations, I think that in my mind, one of the things I've always wanted to do is, okay, there's the problems of the world, but the holidays come, and I want to just keep everything, not only the problems of the world, but my own personal problems, sins, away. You know, we're going to have great family celebrations. There'll be presents. There'll be uh, celebrations of Christ's birth. And all those things are good. Those, you should have family celebrations, and presents are nice, and, and, and him singing all that is good. But in some ways, I, I think as we come into Advent, we, we don't need to push out our own personal past or what we have, we have known or the problems of the world. We, we should embrace that and let Christ enter into our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. So during this Advent time, we're, at, we're really invited to realize, okay, I'm not exactly what I should be, and the world certainly isn't. But we have something forward to look forward to. This one is even maybe a little bit more somber, but I really like it. He went on to write, A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. When we look at our personal problems of sin, Again, we, we, and I don't want to diminish this, we need to respond to what Christ has. We need to repent and to turn from sin. We need to confess. But we also need, I think, to even know more than that is that our real situation is like a person in a prison waiting to be freed, and we have the key. Christ has the key. Our great hope there, though, is that Christ has already said he has the key and he will open it. All we have to do is simply ask. Thank you.